The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. And turn, if you will, in your scriptures to Matthew chapter 23. And while you're turning there, you might think that Psalm 82, the psalm we've just sung, is something of an odd psalm. Uh, God stands in the great assembly judging all the gods within We know from Scripture that that uh, reference, the second gods there, refers to people, and it's a psalm about God judging uh, the people who are faithless and um, have turned away from him. Uh, That's what we see now in Matthew chapter 23. We're beginning at verse 13, and we're reading to the end of the chapter, and here our Lord is pronouncing seven woes on the scribes and Pharisees, six explicit and one implicit in verse 37. Seven woes, judgment upon the leaders of Israel. So let's give our attention then to God's word. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred. And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the house, the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? 
Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Barachiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See, your house is left desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Lord, now as we enter into this challenging part of your word, we pray that you would give us sober minds, that you would give us ears to hear, that you'd give me words to speak. We confess without you we can do nothing, and we are fully reliant upon you, almighty God, to feed us now and instruct us from your word. Be pleased, almighty God, to be with us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've just read the rest of Matthew 23, which is indeed a sobering passage by anyone's reckoning. But chapter 23 is just a prelude to all the judgment and trouble that's going to come on Israel in chapter 24 and 25. We'll find that chapters 24 and 25 are hotly debated as to their significance and their timing, but I don't think many people debate chapter 23. Very clearly what we have here is the Lord God, the Lord Jesus, pronouncing judicial covenantal woes, curses, judgments upon the scribes and Pharisees and those who stood with them. Seven prophetic judgments upon the leaders of his people. This is a picture, this is the reality of God's judgment, not upon the world, but upon the covenant people, those who are in covenant yet belong to the world because they rejected the Messiah. And you might think, well, what does that have to do with us? Well, clearly, it's a call to each one of us. We who share covenant status, we're in covenant with God, we we belong here, uh, and yet it's a call to each one of us to, to flee from the same kinds of behaviors and beliefs that we see exhibited in these woes. We're called to flee from false views of God, false views of faith, of law, uh, we're called to have sincere, heartfelt faith in Jesus Christ. And we can see the seven sections, and that's how I'll treat the text this morning, briefly working through each section. We can see the seven sections before us. Verse 13, our Lord is going to bring judgment on a false view of the gospel. Judgment on a false view of the gospel. Verse 16, he's going to bring judgment upon a false view of God, of himself. Judgment on a false view of God. Verse 23, he'll bring judgment on a false view of the law. The law. Verse 25, judgment on a false view of holiness. 
Verse 27, judgment on a false view of righteousness. Verse 29, he'll bring judgment on a false view of themselves, the scribes and Pharisees, who they were. And finally, he'll bring judgment upon a false city. There's a lot here. Clearly, we'll be flying over the text at a fairly high level. But let's see if we can't gain some benefit from this, the word of the Lord. Judgment, first of all, verse 13, upon a false view of the gospel. We remember last week how we saw this played out in the text before us. Our Lord took issue with them, verse 4, the scribes and Pharisees were saying, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. Jesus was warning them about the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees, that they taught a false gospel. We'll come to that, come back to that fact in just a moment. But think on what our Lord is doing here. He says, verse 13, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Consider the environment of what's going on, the tone and the nature of what our Lord is doing. We have here the great prophet of God, Jesus Christ. We have here the great king of God, Messiah, Jesus Christ, pronouncing judgment upon a group of people that was largely apostate. They they belonged to the covenant people. They said they loved God, but actually they rejected him. The woe at the beginning of each section, 13, 16, 23, and so on, the woe is an old covenant formula used by the prophets to tell the people they were cut off. Woe to you, Israel. Your sins are being visited upon you. Jesus here is denouncing their hard-hearted unbelief. And the woe is a prophetic way of showing that God is in the middle of cursing them. Just go back and read Psalm 82 that we sung a moment ago. And given that's the case, that this is a moment of judgment and cursing, We can imagine, though we don't need to because we see it in verse 37, we can imagine how our Lord felt. Deep anger and deep grief at the unbelief and hardness of heart of the historical covenant people. Anger that the people refused to accept him. Anger that they refused to give him glory. They refused a so gracious salvation and grief that the people of the covenant, to whom the promises, the covenants, the glory were given, should reject such an offer of salvation. And that profound grief and anger is seen especially towards the scribes and Pharisees who had, verse 13, polluted the gospel. They polluted the good news of Jesus Christ, that good news that was promised and prophesied in the Old Testament and now is being fulfilled before their very eyes, fulfilled before their very eyes in the person and work of Christ. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. How did they do this? We've seen it many times before. By binding men to the commandments of men, not to the rule and commandments of God. By doing that, they shut the kingdom. That They closed the doors of the kingdom. 
the gospel is not the commandment of men. It's the provision of God. The gospel is the good news of God saving a people in sin who could not save themselves. That sinners receive Christ by faith and nothing else in the bargain. Faith in the Savior, faith in the Messiah alone. And yet we know the Jews what they did. They taught men to lay aside the command of God and hold to the tradition of men so that observances became the means by which one was saved. Friends, there's a problem there. If you mingle your works with the works of Christ, you have an imperfect righteousness to present to God, and you will not stand on the last day. Christ plus you equals no salvation. It's very simple. Christ plus the traditions of men, or even the traditions of men alone, as the scribes and Pharisees would have you believe, equals no salvation, and it is to be left in a continued state of condemnation. Jesus makes it very clear. To adopt their view of salvation is, verse 15, to make themselves a child of hell. And did you notice... This first section, verse 13 to 15, is the only section which contains two woes. Two woes, verse 13, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Because the gospel is so central, and they got it wrong. A double woe upon them for the corruption of the gospel and the corruption of those they would make as disciples. It is to make themselves and their disciples, as Christ says, a child of hell. Friends, let it not be the case that anyone here in this room today wants Jesus and their own works, Jesus and themselves, to be the grounds upon which you are saved. May that not be the case for any of us. It's a false view of the gospel. But that false view of the gospel also comes from a false view of God. Verse 16, Woe to you blind guides who say if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. You might be thinking this is about oaths and vows. But look at the last verse of that section, verse 22. Whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. The Jews uh, rightly practiced making of oaths and vows. And yet what they wanted was to take an oath or a vow and and seem upright, but they wanted a get-out clause. They wanted to be able to lie. So they would swear by what they thought was less precious, less holy. In other words, they wanted a way out. They would take an, an oath by a lesser object and thus allow themselves a way to break that oath. Uh, Jesus telling them, not only have they not understood the truth, they've not even understood reality. They've not even understood reality. They've not understood God. To swear by the temple, Jesus says, to swear by the gold of the temple, to swear on the altar, to swear on that which is on the altar— is to swear to things that are all related to God. All things are related to God. All things worth swearing upon, that is. 
Uh, You can't swear upon anything that is holy and it not be somehow related to God. All things good are created by God. They bear his stamp. They are all holy in one sense or another. And so to have gradations of holiness is to try and separate God. It's to remove God out of the oath, out of the promise. It's a failure to understand that God sees all. God knows all. God is over all. He is the creator of all things good. That's why Jesus said to them earlier, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't swear an oath. Don't subject yourself to that kind of folly in that way. It's not a prohibition on oaths completely. He said, don't take this kind of oath. Yes should be good enough for a Christian. You see what they'd done? They divorced reality. Uh, they divorced themselves from reality. They divorced themselves from truth and honesty. They divorced themselves from God. It's much like today's society, isn't it? God has been removed out of the equation. Language means anything. Truth and honesty are just old-fashioned concepts. But Jesus says yes means yes and no means no. At least it should. And it does objectively so. If we find ourselves like these Pharisees, we're in a really bad place. It doesn't just mean we're liars. It means that we've got a false view of God. Friends, we've seen the disastrous effects that this kind of behavior will have on ourselves, upon our families, upon society, and upon the church. Christian, you are called to live quorum Deo before the face of God. In him we live and move and have our being. We need to situate ourselves, our whole existence, under his authority. But they also had, verse 23, a false view of the law of God. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. We've seen throughout the Gospels how they give themselves both to their own man-made laws and to the minuscule details of the law, so emphasizing them that they lose sight of the reality of the law, the weightier matters of the law. It's proof of the externalization of their religion. It wasn't heartfelt. It's in the tiny do's and do's and do's of their religion, most of which was man-made. It's important to remember tithing is a biblical principle. The tithing of mint and dill and cumin is not a biblical principle. You won't find it. So this is the oral tradition of the elders. What have they done? They spent all their time measuring out uh, in, in a fastidious fashion. How much should they tithe of their plants? And they've neglected the man who's lying dead on the side of the road, Good Samaritan. What a failure it is to think that adherence or love to God should be comprised of tithing of plants when we can neglect a human life on the side of the road. Friends, if your adherence to the law of God squeezes out love for God and love for each other, you're not keeping the law. That's the Jews. The law of God is a reflection of God's will. 
It's how he tells us we are to love him. First four commandments. It's how he tells us we are to love each other. Last six commandments. They frame what it means to love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. To fail to see this, our Lord says, is as it were, if you're eating, to pull a gnat out from your teeth and to swallow an entire camel. It's to miss the mark in such a grotesque manner. Friends, love for God is seen in keeping his law, not the commandments of men. And because they misunderstood God, they misunderstood the law, they also misunderstood holiness. Verse 25, a false view of holiness. Jesus asked them, what makes a man clean? What makes him holy? Is it having the exterior of his body clean? Or is it having his soul cleansed by the blood of Christ? We know the answer, obviously. Jesus says this, you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. In a sense, it matters not what is going on with the exterior of a man or a woman. It's what's in their heart. Do they have a new heart? Have they been washed in the blood of Christ? Are they cleansed? The scribes and Pharisees uh, spent hours preening themselves externally making sure that they looked holy to everyone else. Friends, when you go for your morning coffee or drink or whatever it is, you don't just look at the outside of the cup, do you? You look inside it to see if it's clean. Same with the Lord. He looks at the heart, not on the externals. Jesus says they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Friends, we ask ourselves, what shall it profit any of us? If we look like a Christian and we look holy, but we are not. What shall it profit us if we look like the real deal, but we don't have Christ? It's not the claim of holiness that counts. It's the possession of it. To have Christ is to be holy. To be found in Christ is to become more progressively holy. The continued work of the Spirit is a divine work, see, wrought by the Spirit. It's not by adherence to man's rules. It's not by working out stuff under your own steam. Holiness, which is a divine work, will always show in the Christian's life. The exterior, in some real sense, will match the interior. And it's the same, the same is true for righteousness. Holiness, verse 25. Righteousness, verse 27. You can see how the world, the spiritual life of the scribes and Pharisees is being pulled down block by block by block. They got the gospel wrong. They got God wrong. They got the law of God wrong. They got holiness wrong. And now, verse 27, they get righteousness wrong. Look what our Lord says in verse 28, actually. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus' diagnosis is telling. They look like the real deal, but they don't have righteousness. Actually, they're full of lawlessness. And that's a good reminder to us, is it not? 
legalists are not sticklers for keeping the law of God. That's not what a legalist is. They're not sticklers for keeping the law of God. They're sticklers for keeping their own law. And because they keep their own law, they've laid aside the command of God. They hold to the traditions of men. While they're legalists, they're also lawless. Because they're trying to produce a righteousness by their own standard of law. That's lawlessness. Look, if we can't be righteous by God's standard of law, which we can't, unless we have Christ's righteousness, what in the world are people doing trying to create their own righteousness according to their own rules? It's it's the most profound folly you could imagine. Trying to be righteous by your own standards is easily done. Go ahead and do it. Jesus says that is to be full of dead people's bones and uncleanness, like a whitewashed tomb, white on the outside, just looking, righteous looking on the outside, but dead on the inside. It's another good reminder as it was with holiness. Righteousness is not a human commodity. It's a divine commodity. Actually, it's an attribute of God. He is righteous, and we cannot work for righteousness ourselves. We have to have the righteousness that comes from God if we're to stand before him on the last great day. It's not generated by man. It's not earned by man. It's not granted by man. It's not a gift for man to give to each other. It's from God alone. By faith in the Savior, we are reckoned righteous. And that's why... Sixthly, in verse 29, we can see they have a false view of themselves. Now, this is a long passage, there's much in there. I'm not going to touch on every detail. The essence of this passage is a false view of themselves. They thought they were better than their fathers who killed the prophets. Now, we know what's going to happen in just a few pages' time of Matthew's gospel. They're going to put Jesus to death. Yet they thought they were better than their fathers, the prophets. Jesus says, verse 29, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, you decorate the monuments, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of blood of the prophets. They're about to kill the Messiah. And they say, we would not have participated in the historical treatment of God's prophets. It's a staggering thing, isn't it? To meet someone who self-evidently and manifestly does not have any self-knowledge. You hear them talking about themselves and you think, you know nothing about yourself. Your character, your behavior, everything you're saying you do or don't do, you do the opposite. They have no self-knowledge. Of course they don't. They have no God-knowledge. They can't possibly know themselves. Jesus says to them, verse 35, This will happen so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah. He's telling them judgments coming on them. 
we have here, if you will, the perfect storm of unbelief. Unbelief is not just this vague, I don't believe in God, or I'm an atheist. No, unbelief is a systematic denial of biblical truth, doctrine by doctrine by doctrine by doctrine. And in place of biblical doctrine, the unbeliever has created their own set of doctrines and beliefs. It's very clear from this passage. Friends, surround yourself with people who will gently and lovingly tell you who you are. When you read your Bible, don't read the Scriptures to confirm your own positions. Read them to test your own positions. Search me, O God, and see if there be any unbelieving way in me. Test me. It takes time, honesty, and a new heart. When we know ourselves, we'll know what? We're sinners. Got no righteousness. We're sinners. And we need a Savior. Jesus finishes this judgment, verse 37 with a lament over the city. He, he's really lamenting the scribes and Pharisees. I think it's clear here. Uh, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who ascend to it. That's precisely what he's just said about the Pharisees and scribes. But notice how he, if I can use this word, corporatizes the woe, makes it more general. Jerusalem, the city. Calvin writes of this verse, Christ utters an exclamation at a sight so monstrous as the holy city of God should have arrived at such a pitch of madness that it had long endeavored to extinguish the saving doctrine of God by shedding the blood of the prophets. And now they're going to shed the blood of the great prophet of God, Jesus. Calvin says Jesus had indignation here. Another writer says there's an outpouring of grief. Another one says a wistful note of lament. Another writer says Jesus is showing true lament over the city. Sorrow and anger over the hardness of heart. And not just a hardness of heart that was not familiar with the ways of God, but the hardness of heart, the stiffness of neck of the very people of God, and that the ones who should have been teaching the people in the way of life. See, verse 38, see, your house is left to you desolate. The spiritual house of the nation of Israel was left desolate. And the physical house of God, the temple, would just 40 years later be destroyed, as our Lord will say in chapter 24, 1 and 2. Their house is left desolate. How Jesus, he says, how I would have gathered them as a hen gathers its chicks. You ever seen a hen doing that? They can be bold. They'll, they'll spread themselves out with wings over their chicks, protecting them from, from predators. How I would have done that, Jesus says, but they would not have it. Please don't be here today and not have what Jesus is offering. It's a sorry, sorry tale, isn't it? Sorrowful tale. Darkness. 
Chapter 24 is going to be filled with darkness. Chapter 25 is going to be filled with darkness. Chapter 26 is the outworking of darkness, the plot to kill our Lord. And yet I think there's one ray of gospel light there in verse 39. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a bit of a cryptic verse. I'll be quite honest. There's a lot of differences, a lot of opinions on what it means. I'm not absolutely certain what it means, but I'll tell you what I think it means. And you can go home and decide for yourself. Notice the word see in verse 39. It's also there at the beginning of verse 38. See, your house has left you desolate. For I tell you, verse 39, you will not see me again until the day when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew uses the word see in different ways in his gospel. Sometimes it's just pure vision. Can you see it? But sometimes it's seeing with the eyes of faith. Sometimes it's hearing with the ears of faith. Those eyes and ears belong together. Sometimes it's a lack of faith. Chapter 13, verse 13, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive for this people's heart has grown dull. But then he says, chapter 13, verse 16, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. He's not talking about physical sight. He's talking about spiritual sight. He's talking about receiving the Christ, receiving the gospel. What's said there? What are they going to say? They're going to say he will not see him again until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you remember where that's been said before in Matthew's gospel? Chapter 21, the triumphal entry. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Where at least externally the people receive Christ and worshipped him after some fashion, whether it's of faith or not, again is debated. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I think what our Lord is saying is here is that there'll come a time after our Lord has gone and before they see him again at the second coming where there will be an outpouring of mercy and the Spirit upon Jews. And they will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When do we first see that? Pentecost. Thousands and thousands of Jews are saved. You read the first seven chapters of Acts. Thousands of Jews are being saved. They're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And just to show my ignorance, I don't know what plan the Lord has for the Jews at the end of time. Many Reformed folk believe there will be a a, a large ingathering of the Jews who will come to faith and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It could happen. I just don't know. But we see what's happening here, don't we? In the midst of all this darkness, what's Jesus telling us? He's telling us God is faithful. God has not forgotten his plan. God has provided an answer to sin. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And here are his people blessing the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Friends, two two closing applications. If we could sum up this text, we'd have to say overwhelmingly it's about judgment. And it says this to us. Never let your outward status as a Christian 
you're baptized, you're a member of a Bible-believing church, you're a member in good standing, never let those things suffice or replace saving faith in Christ because they don't replace saving faith in Christ. They just don't. Getting to Judgment Day and you tell God, well, I was a member of Shiloh OPC. He'll say, so what? That's not going to save you. Jesus died on the cross, not Shiloh OPC. As important as church membership is, and it's vitally important, as important as baptism is, and it's vitally important, as important as everything else we do is, it's only faith in Christ, a sincere faith, that will see you into heaven. But equally, never let us forget, if I'm right about verse 39, I think I am, let us never forget the expansive mercy of God. Is it conceivable that some of those who put Christ to death later came to faith in him? Of course it's conceivable. We don't know exactly, but of course it's conceivable. Look at the Apostle Paul. Here we see the faithfulness of God. God who promised salvation to his people and to the utmost ends of the earth is here seen working it out, promising and prophesying the blessedness of what it is to believe in Christ. What a glorious day it will be when we get to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Our great God, we do bless you and honor you. We give you thanks for all your many mercies. We plead with you, Father in heaven, be merciful to us. Remove from us, Lord God, any sense of entitlement or privilege, that we might not be those, Lord God, who set ourselves up as something, but rather empty ourselves, counting ourselves as servants. Oh, Lord, be pleased to work in us, work in any here who do not have faith, and deliver, Lord God, each one of us. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.